Our God and Father, Lord, we praise you and we thank you. Oh, Lord, you're holy, God. You're set apart from all of your creation. You're high and lifted up upon your throne. You rule over the world and all that you have made. Oh, Lord, you give us life and you give us breath and you give us everything that we have. And we are so grateful, God. Lord, more than that, even though we deserve death, you have shown us grace. You've given us favor we do not deserve. And even sent your son Jesus to die in our place for our rebellion against you. Oh God, you love your enemies. And Lord, as we consider these things, we are moved to want to be like you. <clears throat> and even that is a gift from you, God. That you've given us by your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be like you. Help us to hear these words in Scripture and to be encouraged that our lives are in your sovereign hands. And that, Lord, we are the objects of your grace because you have chosen to save us. And, Father, I pray that we would rest assured in your good work in us. And may we, in response, work out our salvation with fear and trembling before you. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in this place and to freely proclaim your word. We honor and we bless you because of Jesus' precious blood. Amen. Okay, so then. Uh, we're going to pick up at the bottom of page 102. And uh, before we get started there, I just want to give you just a little bit of a review and kind of remind you of the context of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and what's going on. You recall that uh, really this section of text is chapter 2 verse 1 through 17, which is the whole chapter. But there Paul is writing, this is like the main section of the letter, and he's writing to clarify some questions that they had uh, in response to the letter of 1 Thessalonians that he wrote to them. They had some further questions about uh, the day of the Lord and the rapture and the timing of those things, and Paul was writing to explain and remind them of things that he had told them previously and kind of give them some further insight as to the specific answer to their questions. And effectively, in the first part of chapter 2, they were struggling with uh, the fact that somebody had written a letter or given a prophecy or something to the effect saying that the day of the Lord had already come and that they were in this much affliction uh, because the, 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 uh, the great tribulation of the end times had come upon them. Well, Paul writes to assure them that no, this is not the tribulation. Even though you're enduring much affliction, this is not quite what it's going to be like. But those things, that is, the day of the Lord, the coming of our Lord, and our being gathered to Him are not going to happen until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness be revealed. Amen. Then... That time of tribulation, just like Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, then you know there will be a time of tribulation such as not happened from the beginning of nations until that time. And that for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And if you will, Paul goes on giving a description in this main section of the letter of what's going to happen when the Antichrist comes and the tremendous deception that he works. But Paul's main... Um, goal, if you will, in this text is to encourage the Thessalonians 
that they, in fact, are not like the wicked who perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, but instead they are the ones whom God has chosen from the beginning for salvation and that their salvation lies firmly in his hands and it's being evidenced by the sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth that they possess. That even as they're being changed and becoming like Christ and now they love God and they're preaching the gospel and they're serving God and their lives have been powerfully transformed by the gospel, this is evidence that they've been chosen by God from the beginning and they're not going to fall away and perish like those who do not love the truth but instead take pleasure in wickedness. Right? You see that contrast in Paul's section of text here. Well, in, in what we're looking at really is verses 13 through 17 which are the last verses of chapter 2. And, and that's where Paul begins to draw this contrast. And the last time that we, we were looking at our text, which was two weeks ago, we looked at verse 13 and 14 where Paul says that um, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. And uh, that this has happened, uh, this is the word of God. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through the sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there Paul points back to their election by God. And he's saying, look, you guys are secure in the faith. He's wanting to reassure them, don't worry. The things that you're facing, listen, persevere through these things because in the end, listen, God's chosen you for salvation, not for you to be destroyed. God's chosen to save you, not that you will experience his wrath. Amen? Amen. You may have some tribulation in this world. You may be persecuted, and it may even be at the hands of a deceiving antichrist. But in the end, you're going to be saved, and you're going to, verse 14, gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying to them, God was in charge of your salvation from the beginning, and he's going to be in charge of your salvation until your glorification in the end. Amen? Well, Verses 15 through 17 are really Paul just further affirming and seeking to give them assurance in their faith. And also in that assurance, he's seeking to encourage them to, uh, to serve the Lord and to do good deeds and to work for the Lord and to be fruitful and effective and productive in their faith. And he, if you will, in trying to bring this assurance to them in the same way, he's, he's also encouraging them to, to, um, to not only rest on the promises of God, but to give a hearty response to God by serving him in every good work and deed. Okay? And so, <clears throat> if you will, if you got your notes there, I want you to turn over to page 107. And before I try to go through this text, I want to read this summary that I, I wrote on the bottom of page 107 so that you can kind of get an overview of this whole text that we're looking at. And then as we go through it, you'll kind of, you'll kind of be able to put all the pieces together there at the bottom of 107. See here in these verses, that is chapter 2, verse 13 through chapter 3, verse 5 that a strong emphasis is placed on many aspects of God's work in salvation. Not only has he chosen us from the beginning, verse 213, but he is working sanctification by the Spirit in us through the gift of faith in the truth, verse 213. He has also called us by his gospel, 214, so that we could ultimately gain the glory of Christ in glorification, verse 214. Here further, he further comforts and strengthens us in such a way that it produces every good work and deed, verse 217, with his good hope by grace. Because he is faithful to strengthen and protect us from the evil one, verse 33, we will continue to do what he commands, verse 34, as he directs our hearts into his love and steadfastness. You see, throughout this whole section, there's this emphasis on what God is doing in salvation in us. 
Paul continually keeps pointing to the sovereignty of God, even in the midst of giving us commandments to respond in a godly way. These expressions of God's sovereign work, not only in the election to salvation, his past work, but also in the many and varied aspects of sanctification, his present work, and also in our final glorification, his future work, all because of his sovereign love and grace should cause us to clearly see what the Bible means by the expression, salvation belongs to the Lord. Here's what we're saying. Salvation is wholly God's work. What we mean by that is God does the whole work of salvation from predestining you and electing you to salvation in eternity past to glorifying you in, in eternity future. And in this present time, we are being saved by God. We are in the process of being conformed into the image of Christ. And that too is the work of God that he does by his spirit. It is all his work from first to last. And he is to get the glory for it from us who are the objects of his grace for every aspect of it. It is of these glorious things that we will sing forever and ever in the presence of the Lamb and to his and the Father's glory, world without end. May our lives reflect a constant gratitude for his amazing love to us according to his eternal purpose in Christ. So the reason I read that for you was I want you to see as we start working our way through verses 15 through chapter 3, verse 5, there's a strong emphasis on God's sovereign work in all the aspects of salvation. And I want you to see that in the words of Paul. Okay? So with that, back to the bottom of 102. You remember that Paul is now giving them a contrast in verse 13 and 14 that they are the elect of God and they've been chosen for salvation in contrast to those who do not believe the truth and they perish because they took pleasure in wickedness. And in so uh, doing, he's trying to give them assurance. He's trying to tell them, look, even though you're facing these difficult trials, you can be assured because God is working salvation. God is the one who has saved you. God is the one who is now saving you. And God is the one who will save you. This is what Paul is saying. And uh, there at the bottom of 102, more than this, as if Paul had not given sufficient cause for their assurance, he says that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There at the end of verse 14, he makes this statement that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine what that must mean. Imagine what the whole scope of that is. Unbelievable promise. It is a description of our future state of glorification when we shall be transformed eternally and made immortal by God when Jesus comes again. One thing we know for sure is the word immortal, which is the, the word the Bible uses about our glorification in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and following. If you're immortal, it means you cannot die. If you cannot die, it means you're not subject to the power of sin. You understand? And so we understand then from those terms that when we are changed and become immortal and imperishable, right? It means that our faculties are no longer going to be subject to the power of sin. It will be impossible for us to ever die henceforward. Why? Because we will be immortal and imperishable. This is the kind of language that's used about our glorification. And I give some references there. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 54, <laughs> Philippians 3, 20, and also 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. Sharing in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ is yet another marvelous expression of the future tense of our salvation as the great hope of the Christian is to be finally transformed into our immortal state and share in the glory of the Lord. A promise which is mentioned in several places in Scripture. 
and I give a list of references there where it talks about us sharing in the glory of the Lord. It speaks of a time when Christ will have conquered all of his enemies and brought us safely and finally to his eternal rest when all the elect people from every nation under heaven shall be gathered before him in the glorious new heavens and earth and evil shall be no more and God shall be visibly and eternally exalted in his proper place forever. In that place, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ will be bright shining as the sun and Christ will visibly rule as the great king on the throne of God forever and ever. The glory of his majesty will be greater than anything that can be imagined in the heart of man. 1 Corinthians 2.9 And so I have recorded a few scriptures here that speak about that glory of Jesus Christ. And I would point you to this remarkable passage in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 through 28. And you remember the context of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's talking about the resurrection from the dead. And he's, it is a very long section on the resurrection. And in the midst of that, there's this little eschatology that's Paul has written there, verses 22 through 28. And even here, he talks about uh, the coming of Christ, the rapture of the church. And furthermore, he talks about that time when Jesus Christ will finally have put all of his enemies under his feet. And then he says that Christ will hand the kingdom back over to the Father. And that, of course, all things will then be subjected to God the Father, who in his role in the Trinity is uh, that place of authority, right? So, if you will, re read with me 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and following. Paul writes, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits... After that, those who are his at his coming, think about this. He's talking about all being made alive. And he says, Christ is the first fruits. Now, when was he made alive? At the resurrection. When was that? 2,000 years ago, right? So Christ, the first fruits, and listen, comma, then those who are his at his coming, when is that? at the second coming what's going to happen there those who are his are going to be made alive the first resurrection are you with me now that little comma took 2,000 years at least are you with me look at, look at what Paul's saying here big expanded view here okay look after that those who are Christ at his coming comma then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. Now, when is that? Somebody tell me. When is the end? When Christ has overcome all of his enemies. When is that? At the end of the millennium. It's the consummation of, 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 of all things. It's recorded in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When do we see death destroyed in the Bible? At the end of the millennium, at the great white throne judgment, death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire. The very next verses read, And then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the old heavens and the old earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Right? So, <clears throat> you see what Paul's doing here? Man, he just spanned in two verses all the way from the cross to the second coming of Christ at the first resurrection all the way until the, the end of the millennial kingdom uh, at the great white throne judgment when death is destroyed. You see that? Okay, he's going on. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. Okay? 
And here, Paul is talking about when we gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're made alive with him. And he's put all of his enemies under his feet. And we live in that world of joy and bliss forever where there's no more sin. And we are immortal and imperishable, having been raised from the dead. Amen? Revelation 21, verse 3 through 5, describes this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, and there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Amen. Or in Revelation 21, verses 23 and following. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. You see, that's the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to live in the glory that just shines from his being. Amen? We're going to be given capacities to live in the very glory of God, which if we saw it now would do what? It would kill us with its intensity. But in that place, the whole kingdom is lit by that glory. Amen? Amazing. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen? Or in Revelation chapter 22, verses 2 and following. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of a light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Those are promises about us gaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it looks like. That's how the Bible describes it. And we need to live in the light of it now. Are you with me? This life is so short. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Give yourself wholly to the love and service of God. Amen? Amen? The days are evil. Make the most of every opportunity that you have. Amen. God help us. It is no small promise for a fallen sinner like you and me that we should gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an amazing promise of a world of paradise which is far beyond our imagination and of pleasures forevermore in a world where evil, sin, and death have been abolished forever. These things Paul writes to reassure the Thessalonians that they are indeed held tightly in the grip of the eternal God in whom is their salvation and on his promise to save they rested their hope. The Christian's hope shall never fail, for God will see to it that his promises to us are fulfilled. And this he will do very soon, for the end of all things is near. Do you believe it? I'm telling you, it's right around the corner. I celebrated my 44th birthday back on January 10th. And I look back on 44 years, and I'm telling you, it went like that. Our life is passing away very quickly here. And night is coming when no man can work. You see, today is a new day. Today is a day to glorify God with our life. Today is a day to love God and love our neighbor as ourself. 
Today is a day to hear the voice of the Lord. Today is a day to turn our back on sin and to live in the glory of God. Are you with me? Oh, Christian, these days are deceitful. They are deceptive days. And we need to serve God with our whole heart. Amen? It will not be long and you will be standing before the throne of God in judgment. Are you with me? Because we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive in the body that assessment from the Lord. Amen? I don't know about you, but when I show up on that day, I don't want to be ashamed. Amen? God help us. He writes in verse 15, So then, brethren... On the basis of the fact that God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation by the sanctification of the Spirit and through faith in the truth and because God called you through the gospel that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. On this basis then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which, we, which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Paul now encourages them to stand firm in the afflictions they are facing and to hold to the traditions you were taught by the apostles, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. They had need to remember the great promises of God to them because they were enduring much affliction at the hands of their persecutors, so much so that they thought they had entered into the tribulation period or the day of the Lord. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. Having sufficiently reminded them that they were the objects of God's salvation in Christ, he now exhorts them to stand firm in this faith, meaning to stand their ground on the promises they have believed and not to be moved by their afflictions to the point of despair. See here that Paul has appealed to their knowledge of the gospel and what it has promised them as a bulwark against all the deception that Satan and the world can muster, which is a sure defense and cause for us to stand firm. Listen, did not Christ promise you eternal life in the gospel? And did he not promise to keep you until the day of salvation, until the day of Jesus Christ? Do you believe it? Then stand firm. That's what Paul's saying. Believe that gospel which you believed. Hold to it tightly and live in those promises. We need to read those promises of glory again and again and again. Amen? They need to be a theme in our life. We need to be reminded that this is all about glory. The greater reality is us living in the joy and the bliss of God forever. This is just a light and momentary affliction here. Amen? Amen. But it's achieving for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Amen? We need to live in these great themes of Scripture if we want to live victorious lives. Amen? We need to keep the Word of God always before us like a front lip before our eyes. We've got to write it on our gates, write it on our doors. Talk about it when we sit down, lie down, get up and walk along the way. Amen? We need much encouragement in these dark days. When he says... Hold to the traditions which you were taught. He refers to the whole body of teachings and commandments which he delivered to them when he discipled them for that brief time of three to four weeks and also which he delineated to them in the writing of the letters of First and Second Thessalonians. This he confirms when he says, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. In other words, hold to the Christian faith as we taught it to you when we were there with you and also what we wrote you in the letter. That's what he's saying, by hold to the traditions. As Paul had taught them in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, the message that they had received was the very word of God and not of men lest it should be viewed as something that could be disregarded. 
The Christian message and the Holy Bible are in fact the very words of God, which have been manifested to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and attested to by many powerful proofs, both by the hands of Jesus and the apostles, and are to be received as the very authoritative word of God, which is to be revered accordingly and swiftly obeyed, lest we should be taken away and held captive by sin and death with the world of unbelievers. Listen, this is the word of the living God. This isn't the words of men. This isn't optional. This isn't something we just disregard. Are you with me? These are the holy words of God. God has shown up in the person of Jesus, the living word. And he has attested to these words by the power and life of Jesus our Lord and by the power that was lived out by his disciples and apostles. Are you with me? And we have a record of it all. These words of God are the very words of God, and this is how we are to receive them, just like the Thessalonians did. You might remember the strong exhortations that Paul gave them, seeking that they would live in a manner that glorifies God as his holy people. He wrote back in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and following. He said, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. For what, Paul? So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. You see, here's what Paul was doing. He was constantly imploring. He was constantly exhorting and encouraging them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Why? Because the message he brought was from God. And it was to be swiftly and fully obeyed. Amen? Paul wasn't preaching no mamby-pamby Christianity. Are you with me? And they didn't receive it like that. The scripture says in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians that they received it with full conviction and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? They went out and they did what it said. Good night. Paul discipled these guys for three weeks. He goes away for like, for like three, four months. And the next thing he knows, they have evangelized the entire province of Macedonia and Achaia. You understand? They did what Paul said. They received it as if God himself had come and charged them as being ministers of the gospel. And they went out and they took the message, man. They believed it. They laid hold of God's resources and went out and did what he called them to do. But this is what Paul was doing. He was encouraging, imploring, exhorting them night and day with tears, undoubtedly. Right? That they might do what? Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What does he mean? He means live a holy life. He means be like God in your character and in your actions. He means walk the talk. Amen? See here then, Paul reaffirming to them to remain obedient to the traditions or teachings and commandments which he delivered to them and exhorting them again to remain steadfast in their faith regardless of the opposition they may face, and even if the whole world falls prey to a deceiving Antichrist and perish forever. Even though we be assured of God's election and calling, we are frequently exhorted in Scripture to stand firm and to see to it that we remain steadfast in the faith, holding tightly to the teachings and traditions we have learned, and to persevere in the faith until the end. For only if we persevere in the faith shall our hope be realized. Did you guess that last piece? Only if we persevere in the faith shall our hope be realized. But Sean, isn't my salvation secure eternally? 
Well, it is if it's the real thing. And just how do we know whether or not it's the real thing? Because if you persevere till the end, we know it was the real thing. Right? Or what about what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14? Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast from the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. You see, true saving faith produces the fruit of the Spirit. True saving faith produces love and service unto God and unto others. True saving faith powerfully transforms us into the image and character of Christ. If you can't look back on your life and see yourself being progressively changed into the image of Christ, you need to get back to the cross and you need to get saved. Because that's what salvation does. It powerfully changes us. Amen? Dear Christian, do not be moved from the hope that is held out in the gospel. For we shall reap a great reward in due time. Behold, your God has promised to uphold you and deliver you safely to his kingdom and glory. Therefore, stand firm. You see what Paul's saying? Yeah, you're elect. Yeah, the Spirit is sanctifying you. Yeah, you got faith in the truth and you were called by God, by the gospel, and you're going to gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in spite of all that glorious work that God's doing in salvation, you stand firm. That's what he's saying. How do you stand firm? You hold to the traditions which we taught you. In other words, everything we commanded you to do, go do it. Right? Remember, that was a great commission, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Right? And so, so what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to go out and teach us to obey everything. Let's teach them to obey. That's the first part. Teach them to obey. Doesn't just say, teach them everything I commanded you. No, 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 no. No, it says, teach them to obey everything I commanded you. Which means you got to teach Everything he commanded, but the main part of that is to be obedient to it. Amen? You with me? And so this is, this is how Paul does this thing. He tells them all about God's work in salvation. He tells them it's all firmly in his hands. He tells them God is sovereign. You're safe and secure. You're fully assured because of what God is doing in your salvation. And on that basis, you got to do your part. It's just like Philippians 2 right? 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is at work within you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Amen? Because God is sovereign, because he's done all these things, because you have everything you need, work out your salvation. Live it out. Become like Jesus. Amen? Even as God powerfully works within you. He goes on verse 16 and following. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Here now is the conclusion of the main part of the letter, the section from 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 through 17. Paul has written in this section to clarify the fact that the Thessalonians, in spite of much affliction that they are facing from persecutors, have not entered into the day of the Lord and will not fall prey to the deception that will occur when the events preceding the day of the Lord occur. 
In contrast to those who will be deceived and fall prey to the Antichrist deception, the Thessalonians, like all true Christians, have been chosen by God from the beginning and are secure in their salvation because of God's great purpose in saving them, a fact clearly attested to by their ongoing sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now, in these final words, Seeking to give them further assurance, he explains that they are secure in their salvation because it is God who keeps them secure through the means of divine hope, comfort, and strength. Now pay attention here again. Now in verse 16, he's going to encourage them again to do their part, but he's going to do it by telling them that God is sovereign in their perseverance. Okay? As verses 15 through 17 are clearly connected to verses 13 and 14, Paul's aim becomes rather vivid. He aims to assure these afflicted Thessalonians that their salvation lies firmly in the grip of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who being the great authors of our faith, have loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Notice how Paul looks to the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father as the ones who have saved us by the gifts they have given us, which he describes as eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Here, salvation is connected to Christ and God personally. As Paul makes a pointed expression of this expression of this fact when he says himself and God. He says the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Why does he say that? Because he wants to bring this element of God's nature to bear upon what he's saying. What element? That he is personal. God is personal. Listen, when you study the attributes of God, one of the attributes of God is God is personal. What does that mean? It means he's a person. He relates to individuals personally. He's a relating being. Okay? This is what Paul is saying. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself right, and God our Father who's given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. There's a personal aspect to what he's saying. Our salvation is not just some things that has been randomly offered up and made available to everyone who happens to come along and stumble onto the knowledge of it and believe. But it is firmly anchored in a personal election by God, which has been firmly established by the all-sufficient atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ and applied to us by the Spirit through faith. And in these verses will be seen through to its end by the keeping power of Christ himself and God in whom we have set our hope. Here's what Paul's saying. God has given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. And it's through these things that he's going to strengthen us himself to endure through the end. That's what Paul's saying. Your perseverance, he's saying, the strength that strengthens you to persevere that has come from the eternal comfort and good hope by grace that God has given us come from him personally to you. That's what Paul's saying. This powerful promise from God is described by Paul as eternal comfort and good hope by grace. The comfort and good hope that the gospel gives to us is not temporal, but endures beyond the grave to that eternal kingdom laid up for us in glory where we shall never die and be personally united to Christ and God forever. A promise so magnificent that its good hope shall strengthen us to face even the most bitter persecution and cause us to stand firm in the midst of it. Why should a Christian not shrink back when they're persecuted? Amen. Why should we stand firm in the traditions? Not only is it true, it's true, right? 
But we have good hope. Christ has said, look, if you stand firm, if you persevere through no matter what you face, listen, in the end, you will see, receive great reward. What great reward? Reward so great you can't even possibly comprehend it. Right? Why should we stand firm? Because if we shrink back, we give evidence that maybe we're not truly relying on the grace of God. Which might mean our worst nightmare. Amen? That we're not truly born again by the Spirit. Listen, for the Christian, compromise is not an option. Listen, death is an option for the Christian. Compromise is not an option. So why do I compromise so often? (laughs) Because I'm working out my salvation. Because I'm struggling with my doubt. I'm struggling with my fear. I'm struggling by trying to live in my own weakness instead of living in his strength. I'm failing to lay hold of the resources that he's given me to stand firm and not compromise. But if you think about it, the statement is true. Death is an option for us. Compromise is not. Why? Because God has commanded us to be holy even as he is holy. And he said, look... If you, if, you're, if, if, you, if you have to stand firm for me even to the point of death, right? Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Death for you is only a passage into glory. Amen? Yes, Joe. <laughs> well, we can send him back to kindergarten. <laughs> but nevertheless, right? Family, the New Testament is full of this kind of exhortation to us. To, 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 to pursue the holiness of God in our own personal lives. To live out the glory of God. To do what God commands us to do. And this is what Paul's doing with the, with the Thessalonians. And you remember, these, these, these Thessalonians are kind of the object of pity, in a sense. Right? Only in the sense that Paul is thinking, good night, man, all the persecution they're facing. We, we know the situation. We, we went through all that historical data about what they were really facing and how the Bible described their, their persecution. They compared it to the persecution of the Jews in Jerusalem, which was bad. It was real bad taking away their property, taking away things they own. Man, you didn't have a job. You didn't, everywhere you went, you were the object of shame and scorn. It was a bad deal, right? And Paul's saying, look, I know it's tough for you people down there. See, we, we hardly comprehend this, man. We live in America. The, you know, we, we have this freedom of religion, right? And per- persecution for the Christian here is 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 really uh, on a very small scale compared to the kind of persecution, for example, that the Thessalonians were facing. But here's what Paul's saying. I, I know that it's tough for you. I know that it's very difficult. But listen, you must stand firm in your faith and hold to the traditions like we taught you. Don't compromise the Christian faith. Uphold the truth among you and live according to it. Do you have a question, Jenna? Somebody want to help her? (laughs) Being stubborn is a good thing thing (laughs) if you're being stubborn for Christ. You go, girl. She is. She is. So then, I lost my place. Where in the world am I? All of this was pretty given. Okay, I'm getting there. I still don't see it. All of this was freely given to us who did not deserve such kindness and mercy, but flows to us by the unearned and personal grace of Christ and God. You see, it's good hope by grace. Why do you have this good hope of eternal life? 
Was it because you were smarter than your neighbor? Was it, was, was it because you are of uh, Jewish lineage and that God had set you apart by blood? No, 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 no. No, it, 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 it is something that you did not deserve. And God gave it to you as a free gift by his grace. Amen? That's why we have good hope. It's by grace, right? Who has loved us. See here, Paul firmly places the eternal comfort of our good hope by grace into the strong hands of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, listen, gave us. He gave us this gift, is what Paul's saying. What gift? Eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Christian, are you comforted in the promises of God? And let me tell you, that comfort that you get, here's what I'm telling you, the greater reality is living in heaven forever. This life is just this little tiny blip of time. This thing is passing so quickly. It's just, it's just a vapor. It's just going to blow by and be gone. And then we'll have forever and ever and ever and ever world without end for trillions of years won't even be a drop in the bucket to eternity. And in that place, it's just going to be glory and bliss with all your capacities of enjoyment reaching their maximum potential and enjoying the presence of God forever. This thing is just passing away here. Listen, our comfort is eternal comfort. It never dies. It lasts forever. What God has laid up for us is unbelievably enduring. The comfort that we have is an eternal comfort. And let me tell you, that is good hope. Amen? You can do it. You can stand firm in the faith and hold to the traditions. You can do that because you have everything you need to do it. And God is freely giving you that too. Amen? Amen. So don't give up. Don't give in to sin. Right? But if you do, I want to encourage you. Get up. Dust yourself off. Go back to the cross. Kneel down and say, Oh, Lord, forgive me of my sins and strengthen me that I don't fall down again. And you know what he'll do? He'll help lift you up. He'll help dust you off. Right? And then he'll remind you of his great love for you and all the resources he's given you to walk again. Amen? And you'll find everything you need in the comfort of our Lord. Amen? Verse 17, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and deed. Now listen, listen to what he's saying. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and deed. Now what he's saying is, God is the one who's going to strengthen you. And he's going to strengthen you to do every good work indeed. So now do you see how he points to God's sovereignty in carrying that thing out? And yet at the same time, he's encouraging them to go out and do every good work indeed. It's this massive paradox of salvation all through the Bible. Right? It's God's work and yet we're supposed to do it too. That's how sanctification is. You know, salvation itself is monergistic. That means that God himself is the sole proprietor who causes it and makes it happen. But, listen, sanctification is synergistic by nature. It means that we work together with God for it to be fully accomplished. Not that God is not the primary agent in sanctification. He is. He is the primary agent. But in sanctification, we are to cooperate with him. And to the degree that we cooperate with him, shall we gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ by degree. That's what Paul says. He says that if you suffer with him, you shall also share in his glory. And of course, this is throughout the New Testament, this idea, right? We are serving a master and he has promised a reward 
for our faithfulness and our service. Amen? And when we get judged before the judgment seat of Christ, this is exactly what's going to happen. He's going to dole out to us eternal reward. Based on what? Based on the deeds done within the body. You can go read the passage, 1 Corinthians 3. Right? I mean, we know for sure we're not going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be judged for our sins. Right? Why? Because Jesus Christ was judged for our sins on the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He paid the penalty of death for our sins. Our sins have been washed away. Our guilt has been removed. Right? Propitiation, expiation. Right? So what are we going to be judged for? Well, we're going to be judged for how well we serve the Lord. You know, and some, some people, it's like wood, hay, and stubble. There ain't nothing left except to escape through the flames. Right? But for others, it's gold and jewels and precious stones, which, you know, those things last forever is the idea. And you get this, this glorious reward from God. Jesus says, then the righteous will shine like the glory of the sun in the kingdom of their father. I'm convinced that it's the glory of God that will emanate from our being, that we will be given by degree that judgment. And it will be seen as that glory is reflected from our being throughout the ages of eternity. So someday you'll have to sit me down with a pot of coffee and I'll have to tell you where I think all that is in the Bible. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work indeed. Now in this benediction meant to give assurance, Paul even ascribes the very good work we do and the word we speak to the motivating power of God at work within us. This is clear by the fact that he is wishing that God will comfort and strengthen your hearts. He does not ascribe our perseverance in every good work indeed to our ability to carry them out, but rather even to this aspect of our salvation we call perseverance, he ascribes aptly to both Christ and God. If the Thessalonians are to endure through the trials and snares of Christian life in a fallen and evil age and live productive and fruitful lives in every good work and word, it will be by the comfort and strength that God gives to our hearts to encourage us. See here the final perseverance and good works of the saints are ascribed to God. And he is to get the glory for it, and we are not to boast in them. Yet even in this work of God, in our perseverance, we see that the Christian life is one that is characterized by good work and word. The Christian is to be busy doing the work of the master and doing it the master's way. For we have been bought with a price and are charged with a great work in the world. This great commission of our Lord was given to all of his disciples, even to the end of the age henceforth, and includes both our good work and word to carry out. And there I have the great commission, which I quoted for you a few minutes ago. And let us therefore be encouraged in every good work and word to stand firm in the faith by God's eternal comfort and good hope by grace that we may glorify our Lord in our life, and if he so choose, even in our death, at the hands of those who hate both Christ and his gospel. I pray that this section of Second Thessalonians is a tremendous encouragement for you today to respond to God's rich promises in a way that glorifies him and maximizes your joy. Shall we pray? Our Father God, we, we praise you, Lord. We worship you and we rejoice in the promises that you have given us. Lord, we see so clearly in your word that salvation belongs to you and that you have made us the objects of your saving love and grace. 
And that, Lord, you've given us so many good promises, so much comfort and good hope. God, strengthen us in our faith that we might walk in a manner worthy of you for calling us into your kingdom and glory. Be glorified in our lives, O God. Strengthen us, I pray, in this dark and desperate day in which we live to be witnesses of you wherever we go and that our lives may reflect the holiness and glory of your character. Help us, God, to set our minds on things above. Help us to continually add to our faith all of your glorious virtue. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.